Good morning. It is Friday, April 10th, and this is the Weekly Debrief. I'm joined in studio by Ted Baker. He's the host of Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio. I'm Josh Durso, News Director here at Finger Lakes One. Ted, welcome. Another week of social distancing in the books, and by God, I feel like I'm getting used to it. Well, we've made it to another Friday, day 30 by my count, which I, I began on March 12th when all the sports started getting scrubbed. And also, uh, with today's weather, I don't think that self-quarantining is going to be a problem. No, I, I don't think that at all. And honestly, it doesn't look like it'll be much of a problem this weekend because the weather doesn't look much better this weekend either. Boy, so much going on. Even though I've been getting plenty of complaints that people want to hear about other things in the news, other things that are going on in the news, I hate to disappoint those folks, but unfortunately... Well, when we find one, <laughs> yeah. we'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there isn't um, anything else, let's face it. Well, and that's what happens, right? When when there is, when the economy shuts down, you, you start to lose... Um, some of the the good stories, I guess, that pe- the feel good stuff that people like to see and hear, and it, it's interesting to me because it's like we were talking before we came on here about language in media, and I, I think in a lot of ways people tend to take for granted sort of the fluffy feel good stuff that people see sort of in between all of the bad news. Uh, that's typically uh, you know what typically makes up any given. Uh, newscast or, or you know news organization newspaper whatever the case may be um, but getting back to that language in media in terms of how this is being covered um, you made an interesting point before we came on about the language and how certain facts and certain pieces of information are being framed organization by organization it's varying and in some ways it sort of feels like it's maybe leaning a little bit toward um, sort of trying to capture readers and capture the moment rather than just strictly tell the story and, and sort of share the facts. I think it's been a trend in media over the last few years, and I think it goes with the rise in social media and the rise in kind of two-hat journalists who are partly journalists and partly opinion givers, as we are on this podcast. But I, I noted that uh, the fact that we had yesterday, for the third consecutive day, we had a high in the number of COVID-19 deaths in New York State. Uh, that's not good. We also had a low for the number of new hospitalizations since March 19th. Uh, when talking about death numbers and bad news, we see words like spike and surge uh, one media outlet, and I wish I could remember which one, but like you, I'm buried in this stuff every day now, uh, referred to it as a 24-hour death spree. But yet the decrease in hospitalizations, which would indicate that we are perhaps at or just getting over the peak, it was referred to as the numbers inching down. So we have a spike over here, and we have inching down over here. And, and I suggested on our show this morning that I would prefer that our media just give me the number and let me decide, you know, the Fox News slogan, we report, you decide. Uh, just just tell me the facts, and I'll decide if it's grim or a spike or, or whatever. I, I just, those terms are loaded, and I don't think reflect well on the profession. It's interesting, you're right, because one of my, one of my gripes, I feel like, over the last few weeks has been... Um, as a reporter, 
sitting in this every single day and, and sifting through this information. There are so many different things that you can be frustrated about. There are so many different things you can be upset about with the way this is being handled, how it's sort of being. But you don't have to dress up a thousand dead people. Like if if a thousand people die in one day in 2020 in modern life, you you don't have to to do anything extra to to make that have wow factor. Like that will have what that will impact people. Period. Right. Um, which is why I think, from my perspective, I get a little bit more frustrated with the 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 way certain pieces of news get dressed up in different well, environments. Going back to BC before COVID. One of the favorite words on local television news, uh, I mean, I, I see Rochester News, some of our viewers might see Syracuse News, is deadly. Television, they love deadly. If they can find a way for something to be deadly, believe me, it's getting on the news and it's probably going to lead. And again, that's just, it's, it's loaded language and, and sensationalist language. That was one of my complaints from the start was that that a lot of the early fear about this outbreak was spread by sensationalist media who realize that people are more likely to watch your story if it's fear, fear, thousands are going to die versus here's a dry recitation of fact about this outbreak. It's amazing, too, because like to me, it, the, the fascinating part about covering this has been watching how um, the, basically the story that has been... Uh, most consumed on our on our website over the last two two and a half weeks or so has been the the story where we have aggregated coverage from other other outlets between Rochester, Syracuse, and Corning, and provided a simple, straightforward table <laughs> of positive cases, uh, how many folks have recovered, and how many tests have been test results have been received or tests have been performed. And it's amazing, like. There is very little storytelling happening in that. I mean, the numbers tell a story, but we're not sort of telling that story. We're just reporting numbers. Um, people are hungry for that data. And it's funny, like, if you really wanted to spend days going into, you know, going in depth on a topic, go in depth on the lack of lack of testing. Go in depth. Like, you know, I, I wrote down as a note coming into this was like, Basically, if you take an average of the five, six-ish counties that we cover pretty pretty hardcore, you know, ordinarily, um, basically it's like an average of between seven and 20 test results coming in per day. And there are some counties that are only receiving, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 test results per day. This is a pandemic. And testing is that poor, that slow, that bad. <laughs> It is, it's mind-boggling to me because we've we've started covering, we've started focusing on that, but it it's really amazing that, like you said, a lot of outlets are are focusing more on fatalities. They're focusing more on the big numbers that come out every day from from Governor Cuomo's um, uh, press briefings, and I know a lot of people have been getting frustrated with those, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that coming up. Um, you know, I don't. I don't have an issue with the press briefings that he has been doing to date because if you watch the whole thing on a daily basis, there are some really interesting nuggets. As a journalist, there are some really interesting nuggets that you can pull from those, and it really helps paint the picture of how the state is approaching this this issue. 
I mean, we've sort of gotten a day-by-day now debrief on the evolution of the state's unemployment system and how the wheels fell off and how the state has been basically in real time over the last two weeks been trying to figure out how to make it work. And we are going to talk more about that. But I guess my my curiosity is with uh, the governor's daily press briefings, what have you been taking from them at this point now that we're He's probably been doing them for like three weeks, maybe more than three weeks now. Honestly. Well, I, I, I'm probably a little bit biased in this regard. <laughs> I, I, I could do with a whole lot less of Governor Cuomo on the camera. I, I, you know, my own style. If I were the governor of New York, I, I know that the people want to see me and hear from me, but I think I would turn over the majority of the time to experts and, and let them talk about it. I I mean, well, you know, we were told for weeks and weeks and weeks, don't compare this to the flu, don't compare this to the flu. So what did the governor do yesterday? He compared it to the flu from 1918 and said, well, that time there were three waves and we're only in the first wave. Well, I mean, that strikes me as a real attempt to continue to instill fear. A lot of things are different from what they were in 1918. Will there be a second wave of this virus? There could be, but do we know? No. Andrew Cuomo doesn't know. Nobody knows. So, so what's the point? I, I mean, he occasionally says things that are, are very good. But I, in fact, we talked about this this morning. I think right now for the mental health of New York and America, since we're changing around the way we do everything, let's declare a one-day holiday someday next week where we have no president on TV, no governor, no county health department releases, no talking heads opining, and we just go dark for a day and take a breath. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of people are getting to a point now where maybe they're a little bit um, a little bit tired of sort of the, the regimentedness of it all. Um, it seems like I have gotten very used to between, say, like 11.15 in the morning and 1 o'clock in the afternoon pretty much being on Cuomo Watch. Because that's, I mean, every day, practically at the same time, I think one exception was made a few days ago when Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race. He made his announcement at 11.45, so Cuomo pushed his press conference to 12.30. Uh, The president tends to come out between like 3.30 and maybe like 6 o'clock, depending on the day. It's just, it's become very, very regimented. And I think among a lot of other things, it's going to be strange frankly, when this is all over with, when we don't have those daily updates anymore. um, I think it's going to be strange to some degree because at the same time, we aren't going to be seeing campaign events. We aren't going to be seeing these large scale, you know, thousands of people in a a space together for a very long time. So um, in a lot of ways, I think this has sort of substituted the traditional means of getting out and, and getting uh, the word out for various political reasons. Now, piggybacking off of that, I'm curious what your thoughts are on um, how this now forms a presidential race. Because part of the part of the issue now, I feel like, is Bernie Sanders has suspended his campaign. He's effectively dropped out. Um, Andrew Cuomo is not running for president. Feels that way, so but he he's says. not. Um, Joe Biden has has largely been he's been doing some virtual events, but they in in my humble opinion, they aren't working. 
and it's it, frankly people don't care right now. They they want to get through the crisis. They want their elected leaders, or frankly, I think even their candidates, to be focusing on the crisis and focusing on being crisis managers more than anything else. Um, how does this shape what the next six months are going to look like as we head toward the election? Well, I think the biggest thing that's going to be different is normally the Democratic challenger, or whichever the out-of-party power challenger, would get a significant amount of face time. Right now, that's not happening. No, We're hearing nothing from Joe Biden. He can do all the online events he wants, but we hear and see Donald Trump every single day. So it's not going to be a traditional campaign. I think really what it comes down to is it's a referendum on Donald Trump's handling of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Uh, his base is going to believe that it's great because they believe everything he does is great. So I think it comes down to what percentage beyond that base of, say, 40%, what percentage gives him credit mm-hmm. for his handling or, or holds him blameless as opposed to what percentage blame him. I think, I think there's a chance that he gets held responsible to a degree. But then the other thing that becomes a very big factor is who's going to vote. Democratic voters tend to live more in the heavily populated areas, which have had the heaviest breakout of COVID, which has the biggest fear of COVID. Are there going to be people afraid to vote and afraid to stand in line in a big city. Now, when I go to my polling place in the town of Potter, there's going to be one person in line in front of me, and I'm going to walk in and vote and be back in my car and home in five minutes. That's not the case in New York City or any inner city Detroit or Chicago. So I think voter turnout is going to be huge, and I have a feeling that it's going to be depressed among Democratic voters. Do you think there's been a lot of talk about vote by mail and and improving the ways by which people can vote, not just in the primary, but I've also heard some debate about November, just given how regional the pandemic has been thus far. And clearly the data shows that different parts of the country are going to be peaking for basically the next 60 days before it's, you know, truly starts to subside across the board. Um, What to the, the end of turnout, I mean, I'm, I'm, curious if vote by mail can't actually have a little bit of a, a a little bit of a surge in terms of how many people vote i think it's time that we explore that but like we've talked about and we'll we'll talk about in a bit with the unemployment system and we've talked about it many times in this podcast is that government seems to be at least a few decades behind most of the private sector in its ability to do anything that's technological so it's clearly probably time that we start to roll that out. The other problem is that Republicans are largely against it because keeping turnout down generally benefits Republicans. If every single American who was eligible registered to vote and voted, that would benefit Democrats because there are more Democrats in America than there are Republicans. So there's a lot of opposition among Republicans to anything that will expand voting, because generally when turnout is down, it's to their benefit. Yeah, it's interesting because I I hear that criticism quite a bit. Um, 
a lot toward the integrity lane in how this could potentially uh, mess with the integrity of elections. I don't, I'm not sure I buy that, just given uh, given what we have going on now. I mean, there is a, I'll say there is a segment of the population that votes by mail anyway for a number of reasons. Um, and I, I've never heard any of them complain about their vote not not counting, their vote not, not being tended to. I, I don't want to assign blame or, or cast the idea that this is purely political. I am sure that there would need to be safeguards put in place so that, that the integrity could be maintained in that system. But it's just remarkable that, you know, it takes a pandemic for us to think about ways to make our our system of electing representatives better, more efficient, whatever the case may be. I think the integrity question is largely a straw, man. I Mm -hmm. I really think it is. You know, it's interesting because, again, government versus private sector, we all trust, and we've all done it a million times, we order something from a company we've never done business with before. They're online. They have the product. We give them our credit card number, and we trust that it will be on our porch in a few days. And almost always, 99.9% of the time, it is. So we've already figured out how to do these kinds of things in the private sector. It's just a case of moving it into the, the public sector mm-hmm. and using that technology. I mean, like, like we were talking about before we came on, uh, they've apparently revamped the state unemployment system website. I mean, maybe that's something that someone should have just called Google or Microsoft on day one and said, can you put something together for us? Yeah, and that's we can we can talk about that now because I think that's really interesting. With all of the complaints that have been racking up over the last basically three weeks since you had hundreds of thousands of people, you know, running in at the same time trying to file for unemployment, it's interesting because now we have this collaboration between the state, Google, Verizon, and a couple other uh, tech powerhouses. We'll say um, working on on this website, and the website, as I understand it, went live this morning. Um, it was down from last night. So they took it down last night around seven o'clock and it went or six o'clock and it went up this morning around seven o'clock. Uh, it's interesting because watching the feedback and listening to the feedback that, that we have been getting on this topic has been fascinating. In my mind, there are two camps of people. You have camps of people who are just frustrated uh, within those who have been trying to apply for benefits over the last three weeks, many of which who've who've gotten nowhere in that amount of time. It's taken weeks and they haven't gotten through the process. And then you have this other segment of the population, which I think is really interesting, who have applied for benefits, gotten through, and have turned around and actually voiced their frustration at the people who have been stymied thus far, which I found absolutely amazing. There are people who are actually saying, you know, uh, a couple... uh, a couple of folks emailed us and they, they didn't give us their identity, but they, they shared with us that it was easy to get through the unemployment system. He just, a couple of people said, you know, we called our representatives, we called our county leaders, we called our, our assemblymen, we called our Congress people, we talked to their staffs. And I couldn't help but think to myself, wow, that is a really, that's a really narrow scope. I mean, a person should not have to call every elected representative. One, that's incredibly inefficient. But two, you just shouldn't have to call every elected representative you you have serving you to get basic uh, 
you know, basic assistance in a time like this. Like the system should just be better, which gets us back to that topic where I'm, I'm asking myself, why the hell didn't this happen 20 years ago or five years ago or, you know, two years ago even? Like this, you know, the state should have been trying to make and should always be trying to make its website, one, be able to withstand any any tidal wave of traffic. And also it should just be something that's efficient and works well. It, that's better for government. That's better for those people. It's less work. Well, my understanding is that the original system involved some sort of telephone verification or something, so that that it was a two-step process. You had to get on the website, Mm -hmm. then you had to be able to get through by telephone. It would seem like, when you're going to roll this out in a time like this, that somebody would have said, okay, we need to up our capacity by about 10 times. And, And I don't think that's a huge IT question. I mean, that's plugging in some more boxes somewhere, in a server farm, yeah. and, and ramping up your capacity. That, that shouldn't be that hard to do. But again, as we've talked about many times, it, it seems very difficult for, for governments to be able to do these things. I mean, we, we had, you know, last election day, it was pulling teeth to get election results from places where 300 people voted and we're four hours later and, and we can't get the results online. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting, another sort of getting into this this whole debate about um, what types of benefits folks who are unemployed now because of this crisis are getting. Someone asked me a question a few days ago. Uh, why is it we're talking about rent forgiveness or mortgage forgiveness when those who are unemployed are now receiving $600 on top of their normal benefit? Shouldn't they be able to continue paying their rent and mortgage or whatever the case may be? Um, it's a really interesting question, and I, I think this is, in my mind, this is the way I squared it away, and you can tell me if you think I'm insane for, for thinking this. I think the idea, and getting back to stimulus and what stimulus is supposed to do, it's supposed to keep what's left of the economy running. So how do you do that? You, you have to do that by not just getting people back to where they were before this started, but maybe temporarily enhancing it a little bit in the short term so that you do have continued expenditures into the economy so that what's left of the economy can continue to run in some way, shape, and form. How long do you keep doing that? That, I think, becomes the the real dilemma, the real question. I think more financial heartache is going to come when the economy reopens because that's when Frankly, the bill is going to come due on a lot of the things that the the government has has rolled forward with thus far. Uh, you're way in here. Jump in. I I... Uh, I think your general premise is pretty reasonable. The the to me the whole idea of these programs is to make sure that people have money for the very basics. They they mm-hmm. need food. They need shelter. Make sure they have that money. the The problem is. Everybody's situation is going to be different, and you, you can only nuance the aid so much. So some people are going to get money. You know, in my, I'll take my case. I'm still working. I've lost a little bit of income from what would be my sports broadcasts. Uh, my wife is still being paid as for the library in the village of Rushville. She's still doing work for the library. So we're not in a real bad way right now. Honest truth we really don't need that 2400 bucks coming in. The way things are right now, that might change. You know, advertising on radio might plummet, and we might all get tossed out of a job. But it's, it's pretty hard 
to come up with an individualized solution for everybody. So what you have to do is try to figure what's going to benefit people generally. So I understand if you forgive rents or mortgages for a period of time, then that frees up that money. If your rent payment was going to be $900, now you've got that $900 for food or medicine or whatever else you need. There's going to be people who get these payments that don't particularly need them, and there'll probably be others that it won't be nearly enough. But I don't know any way you know, that you can micro-target individuals and say, okay, here's what you get, here's what you get, here's what you get. Well, and that's a that's a great point. I think, you know, I listened this week to one of uh, Evan Dawson's show on WXXI in Rochester, and they basically spent an hour going into the moral dilemma that you just described to a T. You know, a couple still working, still no significant change or no change in income. Um, what do you, they're like, they're, for some people, there are feelings that come along with that. They don't know what they should or shouldn't do with the money. And it was interesting. One of the, one of the ideas that kept coming up and it's connected to one of the topics that I wanted to talk about later in the hour is, you know, if you are comfortable in that way, give it back. If you so choose to one of the agencies and organizations that are surely going to need a lot of financial help to continue running beyond the next two months. Because even on the other side of this thing, and this is, we can segue right into that, even on the other side of this thing, I am very, very worried about nonprofits and sort of community organizations and community agencies that provide a ton of valuable services and do it off of donations and do it off of um, various goodwill of businesses and things like that. As restaurants and different types of retail environments aren't able to, especially the small businesses, as they aren't able to make it through this thing, if some of them are not able to make make it through this, uh, it will mean less going into these community organizations. If you have fewer people working or you have a higher unemployment rate, you're going to have less people donating their time and, and volunteering and also giving those monetary donations that are really, really important. Um, you know, I've Every, every around Christmas time, I have someone from the, the Salvation Army in and they talk about the Red Kettle campaign and how important that is and how that, that month of activity, as much of a flurry as it may feel like, funds all of the things they do the rest of the year. And I actually believe the Salvation Army in Ontario County or in Geneva actually maybe had some issues or came up short in their most recent um, effort this past Christmas. So that was going to be affecting this year's programming. And now on top of that, you have this situation. It's very, very, very difficult. And when you think about the things that some of these organizations are doing, I'm not talking about putting on the farmer's market or putting on the the craft show. I'm talking about feeding people. I'm talking about food pantries. I'm talking about, you know, community services, getting, getting people from A to B so that they can go to the doctor so that they can do sort of essential life things that I feel like a lot of folks in the political spectrum expect these things to just happen in the background no matter how long the economy is shut down for. And it just isn't realistic. And I, I think that's when you start to walk this line where you need to you need to figure out how you're going to bridge the gap in more ways than just, you know, the restaurant on, on the corner and, and the, the little craft shop that isn't going to reopen in a small village um, somewhere in the Finger Lakes. Yeah, it's uh, there's going to be a ripple effect. I mean, I'm a Geneva Rotarian. Uh, we do our service above self dinner, which is normally held in late April. 
it won't be held. We, of course, at this point have no way of knowing when it will be held. We raise about $40,000 with that dinner each year. And we make grants, typically of $1,000 or so, to a number of community organizations. Many of them are very small ones to which that $1,000 represents a good chunk of their entire annual budget. So when the crisis is over, will people still want to or be able to come out to a high price per plate dinner to raise this money for the community? It's, we're going to, the economic impacts of this will be felt for years and years and years. That's why I said earlier, I, I think, you know, the president, I think, is under the impression that if he gets the country up and moving again in May, that by November we'll be back where we were, Dow will be at 29,000, unemployment will be low, and no, it's not going to happen. Absolutely not going to happen. Yeah, it's interesting. I, we, of course, there aren't any full numbers out yet. We won't get those. We won't get the full unemployment number or full picture until the end of April um, report. But you know, judging from the unemployment claims in the last three weeks, I think we're up to across the country sixteen and a half or sixteen point six million uh, unemployment claims across the board, which would represent somewhere in the ballpark at this point, I think like 15% unemployment. Um, you know, if if the economy starts to re here's my thing. And this is where, again, we when we talk about elections, we talk about population centers a lot. As population centers come back online, they're going to un, unfairly, I think, skew the numbers one way or another. And it's interesting because we're talking about it seemingly as a negative in terms of it taking a very long time to restart this economy. But what I, I also worry about, especially covering rural parts of the Finger Lakes, I worry quite a bit about as New York City comes back online and New Orleans comes back online, whether that's in August, September, whenever it is, it's going to make that that unemployment number potentially fall more quickly than is actually representative in some of these smaller, more rural communities, which may have come online beforehand. So it's this delicate balance that I think is going to be really interesting to watch play out. And frankly, um, for the people who own businesses in these small communities, very worrisome because it, if businesses were, if use restaurants as an example, they're the ones that people most frequently think about. Um, if restaurants are allowed to reopen at 50% come mid-May, I think most of them will hire back a lot of their staff, right? That's kind of the, the pres- presumption anyway. Say they hire 75% of their staff back or 50% of their staff back. It's going to start to pull the numbers down. But what I get, what I start to worry about is a scenario where 8, 9, 10 months from now, maybe a year from now, we're still at like 9% unemployment and the economy has been reopened and everything is seemingly flowing normally. Like, what is that going to mean for these rural communities that naturally tend to take longer to recover? You know, it's interesting because I think Empire State Development now has probably the biggest challenge ahead of it it has ever had. You know, I had Vinny Esposito on, on my show about a month and a half ago, and it was about two weeks before the state's economy was shut down for all intents and purposes. And he outlined all of the, the money that has been invested by the state into the Finger Lakes and upstate New York. And we are talking, we are talking a lot of money. Um, 
it, it's it's difficult when you're talking about more than essentially a billion dollars. That that investment from the last decade could be gone. Well, and it's also it's going to be a very uneven recovery. Like you, you know, you you talked about a restaurant scenario. Restaurants, I think, with people with stimulus money in their pockets and this pent up demand, I think will make back a lot of the revenue that they've lost. Because I think there'll be a lot of people will have a big interest in going out to restaurants and bars. But let's take a barber shop. They're not going to make back any of that. They, they, all the revenue they've lost is never coming back. So the recovery is going to be uneven by various sectors. I think some will be able to bounce back pretty well. Uh, others are, are going to be impacted tremendously. So if I've got a little barber shop and I'm closed for, let's say it's three months, I have no revenue for three months, I still have a rent payment, I still have to keep on enough heat that the water pipes don't freeze or whatever, uh, am I going to get rent forgiveness? If I don't, maybe I go under. I, I think you're going to see a business contraction in just the number of businesses. I think, I think in almost every sector, you're going to see some that aren't going to recover at all and aren't going to reopen. I think we'll see some restaurants, even in that category, won't reopen. You know, little little shops, you know, mom and pops that were on a very low margin to begin with are just going to look at it and go, I can't do it. I've got, you know, because like you said, I think we were talking, I don't think we talked about this on the air yet, but I think it was before we came on about the rent or mortgage forgiveness. How long does that last? And then is the expectation that eventually you'll pay back that rent? I mean, if you're going to forgive three months of rent, then you got to forgive three months of the mortgage payment for the landlord. And then what happens eventually is this all goes up the chain to the very big banks. And they're going to want to be made whole. I mean, there was a, what happened in 2008, 2009. I mean, there was a big bailout of big banks in Wall Street. And, and a lot of people were not very happy about it. So that was one of the, that was one of the questions that came in. Um, Morgan sent us that question on Tuesday. She asked, what, what do we think the amount of time is that's appropriate, given the circumstances, and how should it be handled? My thought process is, you know, from the point that the economy, quote-unquote, comes back online, you have to go out, I think, at least three months from that point when you can start to say, like, people will be able to begin making normal, maybe normal, uh, normal payments again. So you're talking like, I think minimally you're talking like six months where that has to, there has to be a plan for six months um, into the future. I don't, and on top of that, the, the sensible thing that I've heard, and I've heard this from a lot of banks um, with mortgages, with car loans and things like that, um, they've essentially been taking the three or four month window that we're in now and tacking it on to the end of the loan or the end of the mortgage, whatever the case may be. I don't know what the implications of that are. In my mind, it, it extends the, the length of the debt. And at the end of the day, as long as the person continues to make the payment, it may cause some initial sort of like, you know, cash on hand disruption for the, the financial institution. But in the grand scheme of things, everything should keep running. Um, that said, you're right. Like, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think there again... This, as much as anything else, is also very regional. I don't think that you can say there's a good blanket policy for all of the U.S. I'm not even sure there's a good blanket policy for all of New York. 
right? Like, right. I think I think this is going to be very different for New York City than it's going to be for Rochester, much less Seneca Falls, Waterloo, Geneva. Right. If I'm a landlord, is this my only business, or is this a sidelight that supplements my income and gives me side money to have a very nice second home on the lake? I mean, it, there's no. There, there's really no blanket solution. I think part of what we have to rely rely on here is just plain old human goodness for some landlords to say, you know what, I'm okay. And and some in the very early days of this apparently did that. They they said to, some said to their tenants, I I can do without this money. You can't keep it. Don't pay me. Don't worry about it. I I think you know that might be incredibly naive. But we've seen that. We see it through any crisis. I think that's going to have to be part of it, is people in their own individual situations saying, okay, I can do without this money, so you keep it. You need it more than me. Right. And it's interesting, too, because I've seen that that logic also sort of coupled up with, you know, I think a few lawmakers have suggested this, that there be um, basically uh, tax forgiveness, for small businesses who are are obviously going through a great deal of financial hardship right now um, and will be. If tourism is going to be hit the way it appears as though it's going to be hit this summer, a lot of businesses in the Finger Lakes region are going to be struggling. But it just makes me wonder because the state doesn't have money to be able to just say, you know, unless we're talking about this sort of imaginary capital that's, you know, all on credit and everything is just sort of you know, imaginary. And then I start to question what the hell our economy even is at that point. Um, You know, at what point do we say the, the buck just doesn't stop here, but we need to have some sort of fundamental shift in the way the system is organized. So we don't have this situation play out. Well, Yeah. There's no magic money. I mean, this bill comes due somewhere, I think, and I'm no economic expert, but it seems to me like we're probably going to be in for a big bout of inflation at some point. I mean, the classic definition of inflation is too much money chasing too little stuff. Mm-hmm. And the amount of stuff, and I mean, we still have the same number of people. We still have the same number of stuff. But what we're trying to do is inject all these dollars in. And so I think at some point we're going to see some inflation. The other thing is, okay, you want tax forgiveness fine, don't complain two winters from now that your street's not getting plowed as fast as you'd like, because what pays for plowing streets? Taxes. So, yeah, yeah businesses are hurting. The, the government, I just saw a, a story today, uh, Channel 9 in Syracuse. Uh, Syracuse estimates, I think it was an $11 million loss in revenue to the city. I don't know if that's total projected out or if that's just so far, but there's one mid-sized city in upstate New York and they're out $11 million that they use for plowing streets and for code enforcement and for, you know, pet control or whatever else that, that the city government does. Yeah, and NYSAC released a report, I want to say like a week and a half, two weeks ago, uh, that basically outlined the, the impact to counties in sort of the same vein. And, you know, I think back to uh, my coverage of counties like Seneca and Ontario and Wayne and those in the Finger Lakes, Yates County even as well, they tend to be a little overexposed in the sales tax category where sales tax makes up a disproportionate amount of their annual budget with comparison to other other places that aren't so tourism-centric. 
Um, that's a real question right there. I mean, how is that going to be made up? Are services going to be cut? Are there enough services that you can cut? If New York State mandates <laughs> make up 60 to 70% of any given county budget, is there enough in that 20 to 40% that you can cut to effectively, you know, make those reductions so that you are at least at a minimal increase in property taxes compared to a significant jump in property taxes? Well, and you said a minute ago, you know, questioning what our economy is all about. And, and I always come up with this question in times like this, and that is, where is the money going? Right. The money doesn't evaporate. So if it isn't going to municipalities and counties and the state in the form of tax revenue, and it isn't going to businesses in the form of income, the skeptic in me says somebody's making a killing here. Because where is this money going? The, the amount of money hasn't changed. It's just its flow has. So now we have all kinds of people that don't have money. If you have all kinds of people that don't have money, somewhere you have all kinds who now have a whole lot more. So as Woodward and Bernstein said, follow the money. Uh, we had one reader write in and ask, uh, at what point should we begin uh, – questioning what stores we can or should visit. There's been a lot of scrutiny on Wegmans uh, in the Rochester market over the last uh, couple weeks in terms of what protections they have and have not uh, provided uh, customers or uh, employees, rather. And now we've also uh, received in this area, uh, first confirmed case, an employee from uh, the store in Geneva, the Wegmans store in Geneva. I, When I think about this issue... It's sort of common sense in the same way that healthcare workers are going to inevitably be exposed in some way, shape, or form. My fiance is one. Um, there is every day she goes to work that potential that she be exposed to this thing. Um, grocery store workers are right there too. I'm I'm not sure that, you know, I think people are looking, the more I listen to this and the more I digest it and the more I hear these types of questions, I think people are looking for ways to fully avoid being infected themselves and potentially infecting other people. And I think this is where, you know, when you're trying to live in these absolutes of I will not I will not infect anyone under any circumstances, inevitably in some way, shape, or form, you're going to infect someone somewhere. I was reading a, a story the other day uh, where basically these they, they evaluated how uh, – uh, those respiratory droplets that uh, their their medical professionals have been harping on frequently um, can actually move from car to car, inside a car, through the, the various venting systems and things like that. I have no idea of the legitimacy of that, but I would not be surprised at all if someone said to me, it can in some way, shape, or form get from A to B and you be infected regardless, even if you're just in your car. Um, there's also been a lot of talk. Of course, we talked about what businesses are or are not essential this morning on your program. Car washes, some car washes have stayed open. Uh, there has been discussion about, you know, first responders vehicles. And then also on top of that, uh, the, the rate at which you frequency, you touch the car handle. And if you are an essential worker, you are driving just as much as you were before, maybe more if you're working overtime. And there is the potential for, transmission in various different ways. So I, I don't think that, you know, if you're going out in public, is it a good idea to cover your face? 
Probably. Is it a good idea to not touch a billion things while you're out? Most definitely. Is it a good idea to stay away from people and to, at the very least, stay six feet away? Maybe if you can stay 10 feet away, that that's even better. Um, and, and, you know, don't, don't go out to excess. If you're, you know, if you don't have to go out or if you can consolidate trips, do that. But it's it's interesting to me, like, I think it all needs to be kept in perspective. And at the end of the day, you still have to make those, we, you still, unless you're very good at planning weeks and weeks of meals and things like that, you're still going to need to go to the drugstore, the pharmacy, you're going to need to go to the grocery store. You have to do those things. We can't avoid all human contact. I mean, obviously. You use the word perspective, and I th- that's what I keep coming back to. I think that the general sense of fear is way out of proportion to the actual risk. I live in Yates County. There have been two active cases. One of them was many weeks ago, so is almost certainly resolved. So right now at this moment, as best we know, there is one person in a population of 25,000 that have this virus. So should I be scared to go out and walk around in Yates County? It wouldn't seem so. I work in Ontario County. There are, you know, the cumulative number you said was 50-something. I think the active number right now is in the 30s. So roughly one person out of every 3,000 in Ontario County has the virus. I'm not saying don't be careful. I'm not saying it isn't a big deal, especially in New York City. I'm saying that the vast majority of people that you come in contact every day don't have the virus. So do what we've been doing, and I think we'll be fine. And, and you mentioned Wegmans, and they've come under some criticism. I Maybe somewhat rightly so. I think some of that's been with some people that have an agenda, and I won't name names. I have on my show if you want to tune in and find out who I'm talking about. Uh, it seems to me every time I go in, they've taken more precautions. I mean, they, they were one of the first ones to put the little six-foot lines on the wall or on the floor. They've got plexiglass up in front of the – I said it's like going to the toll booth now when you go in. I mean, yeah. they're, they're taking precautions. We, we can't – it's not the Jetsons yet. We, there's no robot that's going to bring us breakfast. I mean, there has to be some contact. Now, are there stupid people? Yeah, the, the people that say let's have a deck party – with 60 people on our deck. That's just dumb right now. Don't do that. I've been as big a skeptic of the ramped-up fear as anybody, and yet, in my own personal practice, I've probably been about as safe as anybody. I work all morning in a room by myself with the door closed. No one else goes into that room after I leave, except maybe the cleaning people, you know, once a week or whatever. After that, I mostly go home and spend the time at home with my family. So that's... If, if we do that, we'll be fine. What, what upsets me is when we change, when even that standard keeps moving. At first it was six feet. Stay six feet apart. Okay. And I do that. I was at Wegmans yesterday. I was going to get some milk. Somebody was at the milk cooler. I waited yep. a few feet back. When they were done, then I went up and got it. I didn't intentionally invade anybody's space. But you have to use some perspective and realize that you know, again, to use that flu comparison, a lot of people get the flu every year, and we just be smart about it. If uh, if we are coughing and have symptoms, we don't go visit grandma in the nursing home. Mm-hmm. So we'll get through it, but our decisions ought to be driven by just simple truth and fact, 
and not loaded language and agenda-driven politics and, and whatever else. Well, and it's interesting too because, right, I use nursing homes as an example because I think that's really interesting. Like every year because of the flu and sometimes because of other things, nursing homes end up closing to visitors for certain portions of uh, time. And usually it's in the winter and usually it's for like a month, month right. and a half or whatever the case may be. Or maybe it's just a few weeks, but that's, it's fairly common in terms of you know how often it happens it's an annual event it's a threat we see every year and it's a threat we deal with every year in ways that make sense you know to that end i am you know if this is going to be the the new normal so to speak in in moving forward and we are going to be more careful with doing things like not shaking people's hands and not doing um you know wearing face coverings when you are when and if you are sick and you go out and doing things like that like if this is just and if we're cleaner i have been a big fan of how much cleaner everything feels smells and and appears to be um you know if we're going to do all of these things and uh be better for it after the fact uh, that's great like that's a that's a win actually you know so in the grand scheme of things, maybe this makes us a little more proactive afterward, and it makes us a little better prepared to deal with some of the things that we'll probably have to deal with in the future. Because I don't think this is going to be abnormal. I think viruses like this probably possible more now than they were in the past, given how um, how much global travel happens and how, as Governor Cuomo said yesterday during a press conference, how small the world has become. Um, one of the things that we talked about this morning on your show was uh, private colleges. Private liberal arts colleges are scratching their heads and scratching the books, trying to figure out how they're going to move forward after this is over. And a great uh, report by the Democrat and Chronicle um, looked at this and also looked at potentially uh, what it will mean for these institutions that have really become staples in parts of the in parts of upstate New York and, of course, locally in the region. Um it's interesting, right? Because to me, a lot of these institutions we have been hearing now for a couple of years at least that there are there was before a looming financial concern for them. And now coming out of this, there is going to be potentially an even larger uh, financial concern for them. Uh, your thoughts on this, especially being that, you know, you work out of Geneva and uh, of course, people couldn't even imagine a Geneva without Hobart and William Smith colleges. Right. But in some communities, I'm not saying it's going to be Geneva, um, but Wells College was one of the ones in Aurora and Cuga County that was that was mentioned in that particular report. Some of these smaller liberal liberal arts colleges that have classes of say four to six hundred or, you know, very small campuses, they could potentially see a scenario where they can't continue to operate. Well, full disclosure, I'm a part-time employee of Hobart and William Smith. When I do sports broadcasts, I'm paid by the college. Um, I think they're going to face some difficulty. I think they also have an opportunity, like we all do, to rethink the way we do things. Maybe, I mean, look at a college. You talk about a college with 400 or 600 kids, and how many vast buildings are there and grounds and lawns to mow and landscaping to do and windows to wash, maybe colleges move to more of an online model. And, and maybe we don't need, you know, if, if we have online distance learning, we don't need dorms. 
Uh, you know, uh, I don't know how that works in terms of sports, <laughs> since you still have to gather on the field to play sports. But, uh, you know, maybe there's some ways to reduce the amount of infrastructure. I mean, we talked about that last week in businesses. You know, some businesses may not have as big an office anymore and say, hey, this having my force out working at home, this works. So I think that, that colleges, like a lot of us, are going to have to take a real hard look at the way that we do things and figure out ways to reduce costs and to use whatever efficiencies we can. Maybe, maybe colleges will combine. Maybe you'll take a combined online course that Wells students and HWS students and Keuka students can all access together. I, you know, mm-hmm. uh, governments have done that. Municipalities have looked at ways of sharing services. Maybe, maybe instead of having uh, you know whatever history course at one school and history course at this school and history course at this school, we combine it into one among the three schools. Yeah, it's interesting. And you brought up sports, so I want to ask you because we have a couple extra minutes here. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about when "quote unquote" normal resumes for folks like you and I, or anyone else for that matter. Uh, flip side of that question is, and I haven't heard it asked as often except for on ESPN, uh, when do the major sports resume and what does that um, what does that look like in your opinion? I had thought for quite a while, I had, had been saying September 1st that we'd have fall college sports. There was just a survey, and I, uh, Quinnipiac, I think, 72% of people polled said they would not attend a sporting event until there's a vaccination. And if that's going to be a year and a half, I I think it would no longer surprise me to not see an NFL season. If we do, it will almost certainly be played in empty stadiums. That's that's my thinking right now. And we were talking about this this morning. For us that do local sports, it is a tremendous opportunity because if high school sports come back in the fall and the only way that you can hear the Geneva football game is to listen to it on our station or or on Finger Lakes 1, that's an opportunity for us. But I I think, I I really think there's going to be a fundamental change in the whole idea of being in crowded rooms. Uh, You know, it's, it's, and so... It wouldn't surprise me at all if there wasn't an NFL season. I think I'd be more surprised if there were an NFL season with full stadiums. It's interesting. Um, so to that end, do we think, because I've heard, I've heard quite a few times in the last four or five days that there's the potential for baseball coming back in May, which seems like a huge, juxt- uh, a huge flip <laughs> from what you just described. Um, what is... Is that a possibility, or is that something that seems like just a pipe dream at this point? I think it's a possibility, probably without the crowds. Right. If uh, we mentioned that website that I've been following uh, out of the University of Washington, tracking the curves, their latest projection, they haven't updated it since two days ago, so I'll be curious to see uh, when, they, when they put up their next projection. Their projections were that by May 6th, there would be zero coronavirus deaths in New York State. As you pointed out, the curve is behind the places that got it first are further along in the progression. So I could see a situation where by the 4th of July, there have been basically few to no deaths in the United States now for a few weeks, and people are champing at the bit and they want to get it back. But if they do, it's almost certainly not going to be 
with stadiums with big attendance, which then again creates a whole other problem because some sports rely heavily on attendance. Baseball relies more heavily on attendance than does football. Football has the national network contracts. They could play in an empty TV studio, and that doesn't make that much a difference. Baseball relies far more heavily on gate receipts to run. So do we see a reduction in player salaries? You know, what, what do we see if baseball comes back but can't have the gate? Right. It's interesting. A lot of, un, lot of unanswered questions. Uh, Ted, where can folks listen to you Monday through Friday? I'm on the Figure Lakes Morning News in Geneva. It's 95.9 and 1240 WGVA. In Auburn, it's 98.1 and 1590 WAUB. Uh, thanks to the, the many comments we've gotten. I'm sure you have as well. Uh, people appreciate our trying to sift through this mountain of information coming down and, and give people what they need. It, there's Yeah, and there's a lot of it. We will be here. Uh, we will be back next week. We'll see you then. Thanks for watching or listening. The show is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as YouTube. Visit www.fingerlakes1.com slash debrief to check out archived episodes or to leave us a message. For my guests in studio and the rest of the FO1 News team, have a great weekend and we'll catch you next time.